The biggest reason I wanted to write was that when she came out, I looked for books and I couldn't find what I needed to read. My story was was missing. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. Have you ever felt like nobody else in the world has faced the unique set of challenges and frustrations that you're facing in your life right now? On today's episode of the Find Your Voice podcast, we're going to talk to a woman who felt just like that. So she decided to write down her story. And what she found was that her story wasn't quite as unique as she thought it was, and she wasn't alone. In fact, by sharing her story, she was able to extend courage and healing to more people than she ever dreamed possible, including, of course, herself. Paria Hasuri is an Iranian-American, pediatrician, mother of three, and author of the book Found in Transition, which details her journey as a mother while her teenage daughter transitioned from male to female. But the story Paria wrote, the one she shares with us on today's episode, and the one in her book Found in Transition, isn't just about being a mother to a trans child. It's a story about identity, motherhood, becoming a writer, and of course, my favorite, the power of writing to help us heal and evolve. On today's episode, which may be one of the most important episodes we've ever recorded here to date, we talk about not only how we can do a better job of supporting our trans brothers and sisters, which is very important in itself, but also we talk about the power of leaning into our discomfort and insecurity, no matter where that discomfort and insecurity is coming from, rather than shying away from it. We talk about moving from a life of fear to a life of love. And finally, we talk about human beings' capacity to evolve. I'm so excited for this episode and very excited for Paria's book, which, by the way, you can find wherever books are sold. Again, it's called Found in Transition. So look for that. Grab yourself a copy. And without any further ado, here's today's episode. Hi, Paria. Welcome to Find Your Voice podcast. Hi, Ali. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to chat with you. We have so much to talk about. I want to talk to you about your new book, obviously, Found in Transition. I'm so excited to hear more about that. I want to talk to you about motherhood and writing and running and so many things. You're also in Los Angeles. We have so much in common. I've loved reading what you've written and just excited to get to hear a little bit more from you. But I want to start in the same place that we always start with these episodes, which is to ask you the question, what does it mean to you to find your voice? I think for me, what it means to find your voice is realizing that what you have to say, your unique individual story has value, even if there's only one other person out Mm -hmm. there who needs to hear it. And even if maybe that one other person is actually yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's a great point. And I'm sure that you have 
walked through your own journey with that as you've written your most recent book, which is a memoir about, well, I'll let you say it in your own words. What is your most recent book about? So my book is about really my evolution and my transformation during the year that my daughter transitioned. So, you know, I go through from anger and denial to, you know, grief and acceptance and thriving. And I, as I go through these phases while she is transitioning, uh, I also end up facing a lot of my insecurities Mm -hmm. from my past and realizing how my insecurities from my past have caused me to parent her with fear instead of love. Really, I undergo a massive evolution at the same time as she transitions. And and that's what the book is about. Wow. That's beautiful. I would love to, to dive in first by talking about the story of discovering this news about your daughter and kind of, if if you're willing, I'd love to go back to the beginning and have you tell us uh, how did she tell you? um, And then what was, how did the news initially fall on you? And then we can talk about how you've evolved over time. Yeah, so I was actually at a yoga retreat in Thailand with my husband. We hadn't taken a vacation without our kids in a long time. And Mm -hmm. um, we had this rule that we wouldn't go anywhere. We couldn't fly direct. (laughs) (laughs) And we had gone to this little island where we had to get on three planes and take a private boat. So we had broken our rule in the worst way possible. (laughs) And, you know, we had three, uh, well, at that time, two teenagers and one tween. And it was 5 a.m. in Thailand and I got, the phone rang and I knew it was not going to be good. And it was a call from her school, uh, from the vice principal, letting us know that she had, um, you know, told a teacher uh, that she thought that she is a girl um, and not a boy, and she didn't know how to tell her parents, and that she had started doing some self harming because she didn't know how to tell her parents. Wow. Um, so it was really the worst possible situation and scenario in which to <laughs> receive the news. And, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, so that kind of where it started, we, you know, I, I talked to the principal, uh, the vice principal. I you talked to her on the phone. My parents were staying with them. I talked to my parents. We ended up coming back from Thailand. Um, and and so then the first time we really had an in-person conversation with it was the moment we were able to get back from Thailand. And we, and we sat on the couch with her. And she was 13 and a half when she told us. And, you know, my daughter had no what I didn't think she had any signs of being transgender whatsoever Mm. before she sat there on the couch at 13 and a half looking 100% like a teenage boy and and telling me this. Um, So she didn't, you know, when she was a kid, she didn't want to do girl things or play with girl toys or, you know, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you would think or ever say, Oh, I'm not a boy. I want to be a girl. I wish I could be a girl. I mean, none of that. And, and, you know, I have another daughter. So girly stuff was all over our house and she, you know, never showed an interest. So my initial reaction was uh, denial and, and anger. And I, and I was angry because I thought, you know, I, 
we'd gone through just some teenage drama, you know, a lot of teenage dramas, things in my life. And so I thought this was an attention getting phase and I didn't have time for it. And I was angry, (laughs) you know, yeah, first response. Well, one thing I'm, I'm learning this for the first time because I'm a brand new mother. I had a daughter almost eight weeks ago now. And a friend said this to me the other day. I thought it was so poignant how this tiny little being that comes into your life can all of a sudden completely wreck a day's plans and totally make you question your own identity and completely frustrate you and <laughs> aggravate you and make you cry at the drop of a hat. And I, I think that's so, at least for me in the first eight weeks has been so true about motherhood. But I'm curious about this, you know, I'm imagining myself putting myself in your shoes, the kind of questioning of your own identity that you would do because of how much our identities tend to get wrapped up in a role like motherhood. So can you talk about can you talk about that a little bit? I don't know if that yeah. was true for you. Uh, this absolutely shattered my identity as a mother. You know, mm. I, so I'm, I'm also a pediatrician. So, you know, once we came to realize that what she was telling us had some truth, which, which it, it took us about six months to start getting there. But, you know, mm. I, I repeatedly questioned myself as a pediatrician, you know, this is supposed to be part of my expertise. Um, yeah. And, but way more than questioning myself as a pediatrician, I questioned myself as a mother because I was somebody who, who's, I'm somebody who's always said that 90% of my identity is motherhood. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I might be a wife and a sister and a friend and a colleague and a pediatrician and a runner and a writer and all these things, but 90% of my identity is, is motherhood. And, all the other stuff makes up at most 10% of who I am. So as a mother to think, oh, I have a 13 and a half year old sitting in front of me telling me that she is something completely opposite of who I thought she is and that I don't know my child at all, then, you know, what kind of mother am I if I don't Hmm. know my own child? And you know, there was a phase where I was like, w- when I still didn't know whether I should believe it, I said, you know, if this is true, you know, if this is true, then what kind of mother am I? Because I've had no clue about my child's identity. And if this mm. isn't true, um, which I was hoping it wasn't true, then what <laughs> an utter failure I am as a mother, because my child is resorting to this to get my attention. And so I mm. must have seriously failed her if this is the length she's going to, to get my attention. So it it really shattered my identity as a mother. What was it that it took for you? Finally, you said it took six months for you to come to terms with the fact that this was true. What was it that tipped you over the edge or that helped you finally accept that? I mean, it was kind of a slow thing, but one, it wasn't going away. She kept, you know, she kept insisting and she would, you know, she kept pushing the envelope and, you know, starting to wear, wear the clothing, grow out her hair, mm-hmm. just insisting, insisting, insisting. 
took her to various therapists who I would take her to one therapist who would say, you know, I think you should kind of start listening to what she's saying. And then I'd be like, okay, switching therapist, you know, know, we need to sit with this. Okay. Therapist number three. And um, and how much do I have to pay you to tell me what I want to hear? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And then again, got a, got a, so just, you know, it wasn't going away it was there. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't deny it as you started seeing her just explore this aspect more. And then, and then got a second call from, she told us in May, um, then in December, got another call from a school counselor. Hey, she walked in here saying that she is, um, having suicidal thoughts again. And Mm. it was like, okay, it's time to stop switching her therapist and pay attention. And so I finally joined a support group for called Transforming Family in Los Angeles, which is for mm-hmm. um, families in the greater LA area who are raising kids and young adults who are trans. And that first support group meeting was the most eye-opening experience of my life. And it was like, okay, you know, time to come out of you know, denial wasn't an option anymore when it was clear that her you know, I, I couldn't have a child who's having suicidal thoughts again, yeah. and I'm I- ignoring it. I mean, it just wasn't. Yeah. What made you decide to write about the experience? Well, the biggest reason I wanted to write was that when she came out, I looked for books and I couldn't find what I needed to read. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of books written by trans people, which is great. And now I go back and I read their work. But at that time, where where I was, I didn't want to read stories by trans people. I wanted to read stories of parents from trans people. Yeah. And, you know, now I realize how, you know, how important it is, you know, what, to, to read stories by trans people, but that's just not where I was. And sure. when I would find parent stories of, of parents of trans people. It was all this narrative of, you know, oh, when, when they were three, they first said this. And when they were four, they said this. And when they were five, this happened. And that wasn't my story. And my story yeah. was, was missing. And so, and when I start, when I went to the support group meeting and, and once I started doing research and learning, I found out that up to 50% of the population, you know, up to 50% or more of trans kids don't actually present until puberty or later, but their stories were not being told or represented anywhere that I could see at at that time. And that's changed a little Mm. bit since then, but, but still the predominant narratives and stories out there are, you know, are people who they either had signs when they were kids or they knew but suppressed it. But my daughter's story was different. She she maintains that she actually, she didn't even know. She didn't know it when uh, her body started changing and going through puberty. And that's a common scenario and it wasn't out there. And I felt like that was what I needed to read and it wasn't there. So I decided to write it. And I also just knew from having done some writing already that I could write and tell stories in a way that would have a more universal and broad appeal and not just be a story, you know, of a mom and her trans kid. Um, And so, you know, I I was like, if I can write 
a memoir that has universal appeal and I can get a, you know more people to read it, not just people who have a trans kid, then if this happens to them or their friend or their sister or whoever, you know, they've heard a story like this and they're not going to immediately discount a teenager who comes out of the blue saying I'm I'm trans and say no that that can't be possible because they'll have heard a story like that before. Yeah. Okay, I want to come back in a few minutes to the story of your daughter, but I want to transition here for just a second to talk about the actual writing of the memoir. I'd love to start with hearing from you. What was your writing life like before you started writing this memoir and then did this did writing about this particular subject feel any different to you? And if so, how? Yeah, so my writing life really started in, I think in 2012, I started running. And I was, I was, I never really wrote before that, before that. But in 2012, I started running and training for a half marathon. And this was at a time where I sort of felt like I was drowning in motherhood and responsibility and, and everything. And I was, really initially just trying to get my, my body back. But, um, and I figured, oh, well, if I can run a half marathon, like set that as a goal, then, then maybe, you know, I'll start to get my body back and figure the rest of my life out. And what happened is initially I hated running. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, once I got over a certain hump, it became really therapeutic and meditative for me. And I would find that when I was on really long runs, these kind of words and ideas would come to me and some stories from my past and memories that I had suppressed would come to me. It was, it was really quite an ex- unusual experience. And, mm-hmm. um, and I would sometimes come home and just like scribble down some words. And then I didn't sort of really make too much, uh, you know, of, of all that. But then I, I had a friend who said, you know, I think you have stories to tell and you should start writing. And so I eventually decided to start a blog. And then I decided to write, run a marathon. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do a, write a blog where I chronicle my path to marathon, but really write about life through the lens of running. And so mm. that's sort of when I started writing. And so most of, so my initial writing life was I would write about running, but compare the ups and downs or how hard it is to, to sort of parallel ups and downs in my life. And and that's how my writing started was through, through a blog. You know, I was working as a pediatrician. I am working as a pediatrician. And so initially I would just do one blog post a week. That was sort of my goal. Can I do one blog post a week for a year? Uh, and then from there, you know, what I took one of my blog posts, which was, I think it was called Marriage the Marathon, in which I compared a marathon training to being in a long-term marriage, both having sort of finish lines that you don't know if you'll ever cross. And I, and I submitted it to Women's Running Magazine, and they accepted it. And then I started writing, you know, sort of inspirational pieces for them. And that's kind of where, where all this started. Then when when my daughter came out, I actually stopped writing my blog and stopped writing altogether for maybe nine months or so. Like I wrote a blog post called Farewell. (laughs) 
I also yeah. stopped writing for Women's Running Magazine. At that point, I had written maybe 40 articles for them. I just, I couldn't, it was like, this is 99% of what's going on in my brain right now. And if I can't write about this, it's ridiculous to write about anything else because everything else just seems like it would be, you know, a lie and not the truth. Yeah. Um, that's sort of how I transitioned. What was the second part of your question? I'm, I'm answering your question. I'm taking so long. Yeah, no, you're perfect. The second part was just wh- how did it feel different when you finally sat down to write about your daughter's transition? I mean, I think that the difference was uh, the difference was that now I was not writing as much. Of, you know, I was also involved in writing about her. So there's there's that sort of privacy of putting her life out there. So initially I, I was doing a little bit of writing about her privately, not knowing yeah. whether or not I would put it out there. But it was actually while she was going through this, while we were going through this year and she was sort of going through her transition, I didn't see a therapist for myself, although I really, really needed to see a therapist. And so when I sat down to write this memoir, it poured out of me the first time poured out of me in, in a four month period. So it was actually incredibly therapeutic. I love that to just put it down and, and get it out of my body. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to say that writing is incredibly therapeutic. One of the most common questions that I get from writers who are working on memoirs is how do I write about people in my life who are real and who are going to know that I'm writing about them when they read what I've written? I'm curious. I have my own answer to that question, but I thought you probably have some great perspective to share as well. Yeah. I mean, I think your story is yours and you own it and you have a, you have a right to it. For this, the only people whose approval I got were my husband's and my daughter's. And, you know, obviously I write, my parents are in there, my sisters are in there, some friends are in there. I didn't get, mm. I mean, I think in, sometimes you, you end up writing things about people and, you know, they're going to get upset about what you said. And you, you have to, I think you have to be strong and you have to own your story and be able to stand behind it. And, it, and if you have a, most people who write a memoir, they have a reason why they feel the need to write their story and put it out. Yeah. So if, if your reason is, is a strong reason, then you just have to write the truth as you know it, and then be prepared to deal with the consequence of some, of some people, you know, may not be happy with what you've had to say. Yeah. And you alluded to this too, but the other thing that I do when I'm writing about real life situations is I write privately first and give the writing some space to breathe. And it sounds like you did that too. You you write for yourself first. The therapeutic draft is the first draft mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily show that to anybody or share it with anybody and give it some space to breathe. And then you can always come back to it later and d- make decisions about you know, what you want to share more widely. So the writing process, you're sitting down, you're writing through this process as you're walking through it, you're living it with your daughter. How, how did the writing itself change you or shape your view of what was happening in your life? When I started writing, I also in this, in this, um, 
story, there's sort of the A story, which is A storyline, which is my daughter's transition. And then there's a B storyline, which sort of weaves in and out. And it's basic. I recount stories from my own past and my own experience Mm. as an Iranian American immigrant who grew up in Pittsburgh in a pretty white neighborhood. So I sort of weave in my own story and, and, and background and and experiences I had. And, you know, I had to revisit my own past in a way that I hadn't in a very long time. And it made me realize, you know, I had an experience, it's a little complicated, but I was born in the US. My parents moved back to Iran when I was three years old. And then we moved back again, when I was 10 in in 1984, which was right after the Iran-Iraq war and the Iran hostage crisis. And so I spent most of fifth grade being bullied pretty much on a a daily basis. And I think that Mm -hmm. really shaped a lot of who I am and, you know, what I've, what I've done. And it also shaped a lot of how I parented and particularly how I dealt with with my daughter you know I just had so much fear for her and a lot of that fear was based on my own you know experience of sort of being an outsider when I was growing up yeah so I had to you know so as I sat and wrote and sort of weaved in my story to her story and some of the parallels I really had to just re-examine my, my whole life, um, mm. and I also and the, and then I ha- I was really forced to address my own insecurities and finally try to put them behind me. Yeah, so that I could parent her from a place of love instead of a place of fear. Beautiful. So I think that was really the the major evolution, you know, for me. That's really beautiful. That's beautiful. I'm just, I'm taking that in because I, I think, you know, there's something about having children that amplifies the desire that is already latent in us to want to be the best version of ourselves. But when you see the impact that your own wounding has on your kids you there it just really it turns up the volume on the motivation to to heal it's just a beautiful part of your story absolutely yeah i want to i want to talk about your daughter now mm-hmm. so you've walked through this transformation and transition together so maybe not just your daughter but your relationship to your daughter now mm-hmm. after you've written about it and you've shared about this story that you went through as a family you've shared publicly what's your relationship to your daughter now and how is she doing I think our relationship is stronger and better than it's ever been. You know, when she was growing up, even though she she didn't have what I considered any of the typical signs of being transgender, she did battle sort of depression off and on, and nobody ever could really figure out what, why she was depressed. And I, you know, she couldn't really figure out why she was depressed. And so now she's you know, after she came out, it's like everything sort of clicked into place. Uh, you know, once we were able to finally come around and, and support her and she came out to everybody and got to just be her authentic self, mm-hmm. you know, she has been 
so incredibly happy and doing so well. And our relationship has gotten so much better because she's, you know, before I was always tired (laughs) because I was dealing with her sadness that I couldn't figure out. And now, you know, she's happy and thriving and we are so much closer. So yeah, she's doing great. I mean, she's a senior in high school and she's applying to colleges and she loves to write as well. And, you know, really our entire family actually got stronger through this process. We're a pretty close family anyway, but but we, I think we all became closer and, you know, instead of sort of breaking up, breaking apart, which can happen for, for some families and in, in these kinds of um, situations. Yeah. The other beautiful thing that I think comes out of you actually recording this story is, you know, you mentioned earlier when you were looking for books to read that your story was missing. Mm-hmm. And I love that phrase because I think one of the incredible things that happens when we own our story and we write it down and we share it with the world. Again, you mentioned this, but even if only one other person or five other people or 10 other people read the story and it resonates with them is that it, it gives permission for their own story to also live and breathe in the physical world. It, it really has a way of connecting us to each other and connecting us to ourselves and giving us much more empathy. So I'm, I'm grateful that you've written down your story and I know that it's going to have an impact, you know, both your your daughter's piece in the story, and then also your piece in the story is going to have an impact on so many people. Can you, on that note, can you talk to us about some advice that you'd give for people who have someone in their proximity who's transitioning or questioning, or maybe who, you know, is openly transgender and they're having complicated feelings about it the way that you were when your your daughter first admitted this to you. What are, what's some advice that you would yeah. give? Um, I'll definitely tell that. I want to go back to one thing you said, actually, before I answer this question. Sure. So, you know, the whole thing with the writing your story, even if only one person, you know, needs to hear it. That was one of the things that I, when my agent was pitching to publishers, one of the things we kept hearing back was this is too specific of a story. This is not going to have enough of an audience. This isn't going to, you know, it's not people, not enough people are going to want to read, which is exactly, you know, I think the fact that it was a unique and specific, yeah, your unique specific story does have universal, you know? And, And so I had actually one agent who wanted me to change everything altogether and out and say it, tell it in a totally different way and interview other parents. And I, and I was like, that is not what I want to do. That's not the book uh, I want to write, you know? And so I ended up with a different agent and, you know, as she sent to publishers and they kept saying, no, no, no. And, you know, my agent was very firm in, I know like this is the story you want to tell and we're going to find someone who's, you know, who's going to publish, you know, want to publish this story. And, and so for anybody out there who is going through this process and hearing no, 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 because I heard so many no's, like don't change your story or what you want to write to fit Mm -hmm. what publishers or other people are telling you is what they want to hear. I mean, just stick to your story and 
find the right person who's going to see the value in your story. So I just wanted to, um, yeah. Thank, yeah. Thank you so much for adding that. That's, that's really important. Great advice. I mean, I went through, we went through so many publishers to, you know, I went through so many yeah. things to find a, I, to find an agent and then so many publishers to find a, find a publisher. And, and now, you know, people, anybody who's reading my book is saying that, you know, I mean, the, the, comments I keep getting are, this is not a story just for families dealing with trans kids. This is really something everybody yeah. to read, you know? So, but in terms of, you know, answering your question, I think for anybody who has, you know, a friend who has a child who's going through this or knows somebody who's trans or this comes up with their own, you know, the, I would say, listen, l- like, listen with an open mind would be the first thing you know, hear what the person has to say, be there for the person, don't pass judgment, you know, be open and accepting. And the -hmm. other thing I would say is that a lot of people there, you know, when they hear, oh, your kid is trans or your sister is trans or somebody is transitioning, their first questions are medical questions. Oh, are they going to take hormones? Are they going to have surgery? Wait, what does that mean? Wait, do they have a, you know, have they had surgery or, you know, not, you know, so many questions about, you know, bottom surgery, like don't ask medical and surgical questions. Like just look at the person and listen to, you know, whether or not a person who's trans decides to medically or surgically transition is not anybody's business, but you know, (laughs) that that person's business, but people that's, it's just sort of immediately what they, what they go to, you know? So just listen to the person, see them as who they are, whether or not they do decide to medically transition, whether or not they ever decide to have surgery or not, not have surgery or how many surgeries has nothing to do with their validity of their identity of who they're telling you they are, you know? Yeah. The moment, you know, they tell you who they are, that's who they are. And you really don't need to know what that means, um, from a medical or surgical standpoint, unless they want to share that with you. So ask them questions about who they are, not about sort of what the medical process is. That's great advice. I hope that all of our listeners go pick up a copy of your book called Found in Transition, which you can buy wherever books are sold. And I'm curious what you hope people take away from the book, even if they Maybe they don't have personal experience with, you know, being in close relationship with someone who's transitioning or someone who's trans, but what are some other takeaways that you hope that they would pull from your writing? Yeah. I mean, I think it would be, there's a lot of things, but one of the things would be don't underestimate your capacity to evolve. Mm. Uh, You know, Mm. I thought that, you know, I start the book saying, you know, I'm sort of praying, you know, to myself and saying, you know, God, universe, please let me see this child as my daughter one day. You know, I didn't think that I would ever see her as my daughter. I thought that I would forever think of her as the son that I lost. And within, you know, a year, I was seeing her 
as my daughter. And, you know, a year sometimes seems like a long time to get there. And other times it seems like a very short time to, to get there. Not just, you know, yeah. not just starting to accept it. Cause you know, after six months, I, I start, I started going to the support group and making the appropriate appointments for her, but, but really took me a, a, a year to, in my heart and mind, start to see her as my daughter. Yeah. You know, that's different than supporting someone versus changing how you see them in, in your head. Um, yeah. And I didn't yeah. think I would, I didn't think I would ever get there. And, and I'm definitely got there. So don't ever underestimate your ability to evolve and, and change. And when this happened to me, <laughs> this thing, you know, of my child being who she is, you know, I thought it was the worst thing that could possibly happen to me as a parent. And this has been the experience that has caused me the most personal growth in my life of, you know, anything that, that's ever happened to me. Yeah. So, you know, those kind of general themes of, you know, what you think is horrible could actually be a life-changing growing experience. Yeah. And just, you know, being open to evolving. I mean, those are themes that really apply to anybody and, you know, out there. So those are really the things that I kind of more global things that I would want people to get out of the book. And then, you know, more specifically to trans, I think my goal in writing this book was to show people what it's like, you know, when, when your child comes out as trans and, and also show people that a family with a trans child is like any other family, you know, out there. We, we are, yeah. we are, we are no different. And, you know, they say that about, you know, 80% of Americans have never met a trans person or aren't close to a trans person. There's some statistics like that. And, you know, even, even if, someone never meets me, but if they read my story, then, then it's like they know a family with, with a trans kid. And I think that really will change how they, you know, when they hear about trans things, you know, in the media or, you know, there's like legislation going on to take away transgender healthcare rights or something like that. It's like, Oh wait, I know a family with a trans kid. And why yes. does that family's kid have all the same rights that my child does? Yes, yes. That's what I, that's what I wanted to say. Is my family is not any different than yours. I have the same hopes, dreams, aspirations for my kid than you have that you have for yours. And you you do know a family with a trans kid, and that's my family. Mm. Perfectly, beautifully said. That's a really great way to begin wrapping up. I have one last question for you that has two parts. And the question is just, do you have a writing ritual, something that you do every single time that you sit down to write that helps you get in the headspace? And then the second part of the question is, how does the process of writing, how has it changed you? My writing ritual would be most of the time I write first thing in the morning when the house is like at 5.30 or 6. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really the only time I can write. I, I need the house to be like, I need dead silence to write. <laughs> um, and that's the only time we have it. Yeah. So, and it's really the only time sort of my brain functions. So, so that would be it. And I mean, it can just be half an hour. I mean, sometimes it's just make yourself sit down and write a thousand words and don't get up until you do it. 
but for me, it has to be first thing in the morning in, in dead quiet. Um, and then the other thing is I really do part do I, I say that I do most of my writing in my head when I run. So, so actually when I run things come to me and so, but usually I'm, you know, running a little bit, you know, uh, later of like six thirty or you know seven or something. Yeah. Like and so when I run and these things come to me, like as soon as I get home, I'll jot them down. Or usually I have my phone with me, so sometimes I'll take my phone out and just send myself a voice memo of the things I thought about. And then the next time I'm sitting down at five thirty or six in the morning, I play that voice memo and then I start to write. Yeah. And a lot of times those voice voice memos are crap. Sometimes when you're running, these things come to you and you think this is the best idea ever. <laughs> the next day you're like, oh my gosh, it was actually horrible. And, and sometimes serotonin being pumped into your brain. You're yeah. like, this is fantastic. Yeah. 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 And, and sometimes what comes up to you in a run is like magic, you know, and the, and the words are yeah. magic. So those would be sort of my two rituals that go together. Uh, what was, I'm sorry, what was the second question? How has writing changed you? You know, gosh, writing has had a, such a huge impact in my life because, you know, I've been a pediatrician for 20 years. It has allowed, you know, the creative side of me to exist at the same time as, as this other side of me. And I think when I was drowning, you know, t 10 years ago before I started running, or um, I think that was because the creative part of me that I didn't even know existed wasn't, wasn't out there or living. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's just allowed this whole other part of me to exist and blossom. And I, I don't know where I'd be without it. I love that. I feel the same way about writing and I know so many of our listeners do too. So Paria, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you for, writing down your story. And thank you for being an advocate for not only trans people, the trans community, but also for writing and for leaning into our fears, our insecurities, and transforming those things into uh, a great service to the world, into our own healing and healing for others. So thank you again for that. We're really grateful for you sharing your story. It's been so great to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me and bringing my story to your audience. I really, really appreciate that. Our pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Find Your Voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday Motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.